Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. So I'm very excited to stand before you to open up God's Word and to share uh, the insights that the Spirit has led me in. There felt like a, a little bit of pressure. This is my, my first sermon in my first calling church. It's got to be good, right? And I landed on something perhaps a little more honest than just good. And when I was trying to, to pray through and think about what passage to pick, I kept coming back to this passage in Hebrews today. It's one that I spent a, a whole semester studying in seminary, and I just really love the message of community it brings out. And I felt like that fit really well with the pastor of youth and family position that you've invited me into to try and lay out uh, a bit of a guiding principle for how I see church community to function. And much of this will sound familiar to you, and that's awesome, and it will be a good reminder. Because today I want to tell a story about the church, about something that it can be as a community. Because a lot of people outside the church, they, they know what the church is sort of supposed to be. As part of moving to uh, a new city and getting set up in a new apartment, uh, we had to get our internet installed. So the TELUS guy came, started running wires and cable, and, you know, he starts asking, oh, you know, when did you move here? Where did you come from? From Ontario. Wow. All that way, he says. What for? Well, for, for a church. And so we get talking about church, and, you know, he reflects and he thinks, you know, it's really great that you have this community that you immediately get to be plugged into. Because he's like, there have been some low points in my life, and I didn't have anyone there to help me through it. See, he hadn't been to church in a long time, but he knew that church was a place where people would help you through the difficult stuff. But as we're going to see in our passage today, it's much deeper than that. It's much deeper than just a group of people to hold your hand through the dark times of life. There's so much more that church is than just a community of people who help each other. And so with that in mind, I want to open up uh, Hebrews. So if you will join me in Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 19 and read to verse 31. And so the author says this, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. For if we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has been trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? 
For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. This is the word of our Lord. It's a bit of a somber note to end the reading on, but it forms a nice little unit, this passage. For in the lead-up to our text this morning, the author has been spelling out his idea about Christ's sufficiency and supremacy. For the whole book of Hebrews reads sort of like a sermon from start to finish. He introduces his ideas and he backs them up with reflections from, this, from Scripture. For this author, it would have been the Old Testament. And when we arrive in chapter 10, he begins to talk about Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice. For we see immediately in verse 18, he says, And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. He ends that section with this point that Christ's work, once and for all, his death on the cross and resurrection is totally and completely done away with the sacrificial system because there is no other sacrifice that can possibly measure up to it. Which leads us also then into our passage and then into chapter 11. He starts establishing this uh, understanding of faith, where we get that famous passage, the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, laying out moments from biblical history where people, significant members of God's community, went through difficult times, but their faith carried them through. Their righteousness counted to them because of their faith. And so sandwiched in the middle of these two really important theological passages of Christ's sacrifice and the uh, understanding of faith through the biblical witness, we get our passage today, and it forms a bridge between those two ideas. And the first part of our passage is an encouragement, and the second is a warning. And so we're going to move through that in that order, our encouragement, our warning, and try and wrestle with what kind of community is the author of Hebrews trying to present based on Christ's sacrifice and the establishment of faith. So we see when we dive into this passage, he talks more about Jesus, picking up on that sacrificial image that is so common in the Old Testament, and we see it crop up time and time again in the New, using that image of the temple, the most holy place, that area that only a priest could go through once a year with the blood of a lamb. And that is symbolizing the very presence of God, something that was blocked off from the general community from almost the beginning of time, from when Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of the garden. There was a constant separation between God's people and God himself. But no more, the author says, he says, because of Christ, because of Jesus' work, his death and resurrection, we are able to enter with confidence into this most holy place. For tradition tells us that when the high priest would enter into the most holy of holies, he would have a rope tied around his waist or an ankle, so that if when he stepped into the presence of God, he was struck dead, they could at least pull him out. That doesn't really inspire confidence when you're entering a room thinking you might die on the other side. But because of Jesus... We can come into the presence of God without any type of fear. We can do so confidently, boldly. We can kick open the door and say, I'm home. This is what Christ has done for us. This is the confidence that our faith is born out of. And so he continues. And in verse uh, 22, 
he picks up a series of, I'm calling them the let us statements. And there's three, so this must be a reformed sermon. And so we start and we see, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our body washed with pure water. The author, he invites the community of readers to consider something by writing these let us statements. In the Greek, it's known as a hortatory subjunctive. And so what he's doing, he's giving them a sense of this is what reality can be. This is something to strive forward. And he's inviting them along with himself, including himself in this community, to say, can we take that imagined reality and make it real? Can we draw into God's presence with sincere hearts? And he says, yes. Yes, we can. And he uses this image of sprinkling, of cleansing, which once again draws from that deep, rich Old Testament imagery of being washed and cleansed before you go into the temple courts. Before you come before God, you must be ritually clean. And now we might pause and think, well, does that mean I have to get all of my, my house in order before I can come before God? Before I can show up to church, before I can come into this community, I've got to get my life completely right. I've got to know the right things, say the right things, do the right things, dress a certain way, behave a certain way. And the author says, absolutely not. This community of grace that he's outlining for us, it doesn't have an entrance requirement. The only requirement is that you enter. Because it's not our own ability to cleanse ourselves that allows us to draw near to God. It is drawing near to God that cleanses us. The simple act of approaching God by way of Jesus is enough. Simply being in the presence of God cleanses us of our sins, makes us right in His eyes, helps us to sort out our things. And that is the best we can hope for. The best thing that we can hope for is that Jesus does it for us. And so this leads us into the next point, this next let us, this next projected reality that the author presents for us. He says, let us hold on to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. We look back. We look back on the sacrifice of Jesus. We look back on what he has done and how it enables us to come into God's presence. And now he invites us to look forward. What are we hoping for? What are our hopes as a community for today, for tomorrow, for next year, for all of eternity? Where are we going? The ultimate trajectory that he lays out is this promise of salvation, this dwelling of an eternity in peace. And this would have been something that this original audience probably would have desired so much. Because the sense we get from the book of Hebrews is that this is a community in crisis. Why write a letter, a sermon, encouraging people to hold on to their faith, to reflect on how amazing Jesus is? <coughs> Excuse me. If they weren't struggling. Because the best sense that we can get is that this is a community in Jerusalem, around 70 CE where the countryside is in full-blown revolt. 
and the armies of Rome are marching across to crush this rebellion, and so there is pillaging, destruction, and death everywhere, and they may think we just have to separate enough of this church stuff, we are going to leave it alone. And so in the midst of such terror, in the midst of something so awful and terrifying, the author says, look ahead. You know what Christ has done for you. Where are we going? And he invites us to hold fast to this promise, this promise of peace and eternal salvation, not because that we are able to achieve it on our own, not because we are faithful in keeping our promises to God, but we have hope because God is faithful. He who promised us peace, he who promised us salvation, he who promised us eternity, he's going to keep his promises. That's something we see in Hebrews chapter 11. Time and time again, the people introduced in this passage, they're not perfect, but they are faithful because God is faithful to them. They return back to him a small portion of the faithfulness that he gives to us. In fact, you could start in Genesis and flip through the entirety of Scripture, and you would see that it is not about humanity's capacity to live up to the covenant promises that make things work. It is God. He is the only reason that we can hold on to hope of a peaceful, prosperous, and secure life. So we know where we've come from. We know where we're going. Sorry, my voice is really getting stuck in my throat today. I haven't preached in a few months. I've been busy moving. And so we know where we've come from. We know where we are going. And so what do we do in the middle? And that's when he brings out this third let us statement. So he says, let us consider how we may spur on one another towards love and good deeds. Because in the meantime, in the meantime, where we're in that in-between place between knowing that salvation has been gifted to us and waiting to take hold of the fullness of that promise, We've got each other. We have a community to tend to. We have a responsibility to each and every one of our brothers and sisters in Christ, not only just here in this community, but across the globe. And so because of who God is, because of who Jesus is, what he has done, we are not only empowered, but then encouraged to act well towards one another and to be a community that reflects the grace and faithfulness of God that has poured up over us. And so part of that is not giving up meeting together. And not giving up, the sense in the Greek is it's talking about abandonment. And it's a pretty significant and serious term. It's not simply saying this is just too hard, but it's just totally casting it aside, saying I don't want to deal with this anymore, it's not worth my time, I can't handle it, and to never look back. Our responsibility as a community knowing where we've come from and where we are going, is to be together and to encourage one another to come together. And that's been really hard over the last two years. That's been really hard in the pandemic as we felt like we haven't been able to, and that has actually been the safer choice. But I believe we are starting to come out of that. And so the time is now to start encouraging, to saying, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. How's it going? Checking in with those people you know that have been perhaps a little more absent from our community than usual. 
to encourage them to come back. Because we cannot do this faith journey on our own. There is absolutely no chance. Nowhere in Scripture does it encourage us to do things in isolation. That is our responsibility as a community, to come together, to meet, to spend our time together, because if we don't, we fall liable to this warning that comes in the second part. If we try and go it our own way without coming alongside our brothers and sisters, living in a community deeply rooted in this faith and hope and grace, we risk falling by the wayside. Because the author then continues, he says, for if we deliberately keep on sinning, and he stresses the deliberate nature of it, it's not those accidental sins or those sins that are born out of struggles with mental health, addiction, or symptoms of greater brokenness, because we're all going to wrestle with that for our lives. But it's the ones that you know you are not supposed to do, but you actively decide to do anyways. Those things in our lives that we just know are oh so wrong, but we want to do them anyways. That is what we are at risk for if we try and go our own way with no one to hold us accountable, no one to call us out, no one to come in and check in on us and see how we're doing. Because if we don't come together and meet, if this community didn't come together to check in, to worship, to spend time in the Word together, they risk losing it all, falling away. Because what is the consequence of these deliberate sins of consistently stepping outside of God's will for our life? The author uses some pretty dramatic language. He says that then there is no sacrifice left for these sins, only judgment. It's as if you trampled on Jesus, despising him, treating him as an unholy thing or something common. There's nothing significant about Jesus' sacrifice to you if you are deliberately stepping outside of God's call for holy life. Treating it as just another event in history, something that doesn't affect you. That is the picture that the author is painting for what it means to consistently and continually sin in a deliberate fashion. Because how can someone who truly understands the grace of God by sending his son Jesus to die for your sins and how unable we are to have earned that if we're not coming together, we might forget that and step into this deliberate sinning, treating it as something that just doesn't matter. That's a pretty scary thing. But there is hope. There is hope in this passage. Because we know that God's grace is bigger than any of our sins, even those deliberate ones we can be brought back from the edge. And it's good to end with hope because we'd, we would not be doing the message of the gospel justice if we just ended there and said, all right, stop sinning or otherwise you're damned. Terrible way to leave this service. Because we are a community of grace. And I think it's so important that the author starts this passage with that grace. That's why when we come into our times of confession and insurance, we know that when we come before the throne of God and we confess our sins, we know exactly what is coming. 
we know that promise of forgiveness is going to be talked about. We know each and every week that we come into this place having sinned yet forgiven. But it is a call to take our faith seriously and to do so as a community because there is nothing individual about this faith. There is nothing individual about sorting it out. There is nothing individual about furthering your relationship with God. It is all about community. And it's about a community that is fully reliant on God. The Heidelberg Catechism picks up this question of faith, of how we generate it, how we come to the faith and grow in it and are discipled in it. It asks the question in question and answer 21. It says, what is true faith? And I'm just going to paraphrase part of the answer, and it says, it's wholehearted trust which the Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted. And this is an important defining feature of what it means to be a grace-filled community of faith. Is that we have not done anything to make ourselves faithful to God. We have not done anything to earn the grace of Jesus it's free, and it's from the Spirit. And it's plural. It's inherently communal. Everything in this passage is about the community. Let us. Not, why don't you do this? Let us do it together. And so faith, this faith that the Spirit creates in us, it's an intrinsically communal practice. And so we are to be a place that's not full of condemnation and judgment, for the passage makes it very clear that that is God's domain. But we are called to encourage each other to love and good deeds, to promote holy and grace-filled living. Because everyone in this room, whether you've been here since the founding of the church or this is your first Sunday that you've wandered in, we are all in the exact same place when it comes to the amount of work we have done to earn grace. It's free for everyone. And the Spirit is the one that does the work. So in that sense, we are all in this boat together. None of us is any farther along on this journey than another. And since we're all in the same place, it's a good way that we can all travel together. And so as we promote holy living, this grace-filled living, sometimes it asks us to find a third way between a loveless doctrine and cheap grace to find a way to hold fast to these truths we find in Scripture, ways that we know we are supposed to act and behave and to live. But being gracious when people fall and step outside of those lines, but not giving them permission to do so. It's sometimes difficult, and I don't really have a great formula for trying to find that third way other than to say, read the Gospels, read the life of Jesus. He always found that third way between the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and the sort of liberalism they were trying to accuse him of. He always found that graceful way to adopt the sinner into his community to make them feel warm and loved and welcome. A place of belonging. A place of togetherness. And so we as a community must strive to do everything together. And September is kind of a really fun time we get to look ahead to, to think about ways that we can come together again as school starts and as, you know, uh, regular rhythms begin to pick back up again in church. There's a lot of opportunity to come together. 
whether it's serving as a volunteer for one of our many children and youth ministries. Maybe it's time to join a small group, time to get involved in a committee, to start thinking or praying about what would it mean for your name to stand as elder or deacon in the spring. Because we are all called to share in the joys, but also the burdens of community together. Because we cannot do it alone. And right now, we might be heading into a pretty good time. And that doesn't mean it's a call to sort of just relax and take our foot off the gas. Because someone once said to me, you don't reshingle your house when it's raining. You do it when it's sunny. So we want to avoid that crisis moment that this Hebrews church might have found themselves in. They might, not have, they might have taken the good times for granted. They might have just met together only on the Sunday for their Sunday morning worship and then gone their separate ways, not really building deep bonds around the faith that the Spirit has produced in them. Hence this letter, hence the crisis. And so to avoid that, to avoid having holes in our roof on the rainy day, Let's be consistently at work of community each and every day. Because God certainly doesn't take a day off. And while it's good to rest, we can rest also together. Come, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus for his sacrifice, something that we did absolutely nothing to earn. In fact, far from it, we did the opposite. We didn't deserve it. But we thank you for the free gift of grace that you have given, for the faith that you have produced in each and every one of us, and that your spirit has led us to come to church this morning, to come to this community, to be a part, and to live as one. Forgive us for the times when we try and go it our own way, when we put the community of faith that you have given us lower on our priorities than we should. Heavenly Father, we don't want to leave this place feeling that church is a burden, but let it be a place of joy and belonging. Help us to live into this mission of a faith-based community, relying on who you are rather than on what we can do. Heavenly Father, help us to draw near, to hold to hope, and to spur one another towards love and good deeds. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.